The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Welcome to our podcast, The Tactical Take, where we discuss our thoughts on the markets, highlighting the opportunities and risks that we see in the current environment and how we're positioned in the tactical sleeves of the Natixis models to reflect this backdrop. My name is Jack Janisiewicz, Portfolio Manager and Lead Portfolio Strategist with Natixis Investment Manager Solutions, and I lead the Natixis Investment Manager Solutions Investment Committee. Well, here we are, the halfway point for 2023. It seems customary that Wall Street does a mid-year review at this time, opining on what has happened as well as how their market calls panned out, along with what the remainder of the year might hold. I don't want to spend a ton of time reviewing what has already happened and how our calls have fared, so I'll make that brief, and then I'll offer up some thoughts on the markets and a few things that we find interesting. For those of you who are regular consumers of our content through our writings, webinars, and podcasts, you'll know that we've had an out-of-consensus view heading into this year. We put out a piece around Thanksgiving of last year outlining our views for 2023. The general just surprise for this year might be a decent first half, with the market absorbing the bulk of the Fed hikes in stride, and a choppy second half with the market getting comfortable with the growth backdrop. A better first half could make for a tricky inflation backdrop later in the year, and this could lead to a mid-cycle adjustment from the Fed at some point during the second half, a path that we called hike, pause, hike. This was an outcome that not many were highlighting. We listed the reasons for our optimism. Employment would remain robust with jobs and wage gains moderating while not crushing the labor market. Excess savings were still enough to provide a cushion for spending. Real incomes would hold up as inflation cooled and energy prices softened, effectively creating a tax cut for consumers. With inflation falling and consumption holding up, nominal growth would prove resilient. The fiscal drag from the backside of COVID would fade and CapEx would start to pick up. We were using the line, one man's spending is another man's earnings, while talking about the CapEx cycle restarting. The inventory overhang, which had been a huge drag on manufacturing, would be nearing completion. And auto and aircraft production were still in the early stages of ramping up and normalizing back to pre-COVID levels, and this would provide a boost to the economy. Fast forward to today, not too shabby on this call. We caught a lot of flack with this view when we first rolled it out, and still do even today. Many still calling this year's strong equity market performance a dead cap bounce. Others are still on that recession call. Just you wait, it's coming. Our pushback, first of all, there needs to be an expiration on these recession calls. The bears can't keep moving that end date forward a few quarters each month until they get it right. At some point, a broken clock gets the time right twice a day. Maybe a recession eventually does come, but between now and then, the market's rewarded investors with some nice returns. But we're still in the soft landing camp. And should a recession finally come, it's unlikely to hit before the end of this year. Why? Those same supportive catalysts we just reviewed are still in play. Except we'd add one more catalyst to that list and another one that we didn't quite appreciate enough because it's proving even stronger than we thought. The first one, residential investment. Residential investment has been in the recession for some eight quarters. The one bright spot, multifamily housing. Residential investment turned negative back in second quarter of 2021, right before the Fed started raising rates. Single-family housing, home improvements, and real estate brokers' commissions all helped to contribute to that downturn. Conversely, multi-housing held up reasonably well. More importantly, new home sales and single-family housing starts have soared, driven by pent-up demand for housing and a significant inventory shortage. 
Demographics coupled with the golden handcuffs, homeowners resigned to staying in their current properties, remain very supportive for residential investment, which is now flipped to being a positive contributor to GDP growth. With plenty of equity in their current residences from the price appreciation locked in at significantly lower mortgage rates, they're incentivized to remain in place rather than move to a new location. This prevents new listings from reaching the market, constraining supply even further. With builders having learned from their lessons from past episodes of overbuilding, they're more apt to control supply in an attempt to preserve margins and profitability. In short, builders are acting akin to having a monopoly on single-family homes and in doing so are able to keep demand strong. This in turn has helped support residential investment despite mortgage rates remaining elevated. Secondly, CapEx, or to be more specific, manufacturing construction spending and computer electronic electrical construction spending, that remains red hot. We'll call the former capital spending on structures and the latter capital spending on equipment. Both have been taking off, with CapEx spending on structures almost doubling from just a year ago and CapEx spending on equipment up almost two and a half times versus last year. As a country, we've been underinvesting for years, and the most recent legislation passed by the Biden administration is finally trying to reinvigorate U.S.-based manufacturing. The Infrastructure and Jobs Act is targeting roughly $1 trillion in infrastructure spending over the next 10 years. The CHIPS Act is spending $39 billion to underwrite semiconductor manufacturing, along with an additional $24 billion in manufacturing tax credits. And the Inflation Reduction Act is dishing out $369 billion in tax credits and incentives for clean tech. All of these are pouring money and tax credits into the system to spark mega projects like batteries, solar cells, semis, and more. But in order to qualify for these incentives from both state and federal agencies, firms are required to be inside and in-country. A manufacturing renaissance? Quite possibly. We've already seen a bunch of announcements for large-scale facilities here in the United States. Total Energies and Tree Energy Solutions just announced plans to build a $2 billion plant in Texas to manufacture natural gas. BASF announced a $780 million project to double production capacity at its chemical manufacturing complex in Ascension Parish, Louisiana. Norwegian battery maker Freer announced its first gigafactory plant outside of Norway, which would be built in Coweta County, Georgia, with an initial investment of $1.7 billion. Swedish battery maker Northvolt said it was preparing to invest in a new manufacturing plant in the United States, qualifying for up to $8 billion in tax credits. German car maker Volkswagen said it would invest at least $7.1 billion in North America and launch 25 new electric vehicle models by 2030. Italian utility company Eno announced that it would add 10,000 fast EV chargers across the United States, as well as millions of home chargers in a multi-billion dollar commitment. Foreigners are coming to the United States to build production plants, mostly targeting the big and wealthy consumer market. It makes a ton of sense to build in the United States as well. Ease of doing business, access to a large, flexible, and skilled labor force, a transparent rule of law, cheap energy costs and low corporate taxes, robust spending on research and development, top-notch universities, and deep and sophisticated capital markets, all a big draw helping to lure foreign firms here. More foreign direct investment inflows means more jobs, income, investment, trade, and tax revenues for the U.S., and these inflows are a catalyst for growth both near-term and long-term. 
Foreign investment in the United States saw inflows averaging $345 billion in 2021 and 2022, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Manufacturing construction spending soared to an annualized record of $189 billion in April of this year versus less than $80 billion during the depths of the recessionary periods of the pandemic. Domestic and foreign demand for U.S. factory space and capacity has fueled this boom, which, on a structural basis, is expected to run well into the second half of this decade. We see this strength spilling over into ancillary data as well. Construction jobs created since the start of COVID continue to march higher, and with that segment having added an additional 320,000 new jobs since March of 2020. Heavy truck sales continue to grind higher, too, easily making post-pandemic highs while pushing back towards all-time highs. The second-order effects from this manufacturing renaissance cannot be ignored. Nearshoring, friendshoring, call it whatever you want. Global FDI inflows to the U.S. have handily outpaced China's for decades, due in large part to America's large, transparent, market-friendly business environment versus China's more top-down, command-and-controlled, government-led economy. We're now seeing this accelerate thanks to some friendly legislation passed by the current administration. The start of a U.S. manufacturing renaissance? Maybe. But more importantly, it's another reason that growth is likely to remain better than the recessionistas are claiming. Speaking of those recessionistas, we have a few birthdays to celebrate. Quantitative tapering turned one during the last week of June. Almost $600 billion of balance sheet reduction has taken place thus far. And let's not forget the rate hiking cycle either. We started getting 75 basis points moves about a year ago, too. It's been quite a 12-month period. Fed funds have gone from 0% to 5%. That's 10 different hikes from Jay Powell, including four 25 basis point hikes, two 50 basis point hikes, and four 75 basis point hikes. Quantitative tapering was supposed to be QE in reverse, or something like that. We just saw historic increase in rates at the fastest pace on record, and yet here we are. The world's not come to an end, and the markets have not cratered. We were told that QT would kill the market because the Fed was the one propping everything up, but that didn't really work out so well. Another birthday to celebrate? The yield curve inversion turned one on July 5th, too. Yep, the tens versus twos inverted for good back on July 5th last year. Happy birthday, Inversion. So what did Mr. Market do to celebrate these birthdays for aggressive rate hikes, QT, and curve inversion? He gave them year-to-date gains of almost 17% on the S&P 500 and over 32% on the NASDAQ. Blow out that candle and make a wish, folks. Maybe wish for a strong second half, too. And speaking of strong second halves, what does history tell us? A strong first half of the year usually portends a strong second half of the year. We've looked at the numbers, and they're quite compelling. Going all the way back to 1929, we find 29 instances where the S&P 500 was up more than 10% for the year at the end of June. 75% of the time when the S&P 500 was up 10% or more at the halfway mark, the rest of the year was higher, by an average of 6% and a median return of almost 10%. Those are pretty good odds. So let's put it all together. History and technicals say that a strong market tends to lead to stronger ones. When the first half of the year is up more than 10%, the second half of the year tends to see further gains. Our conversations with clients over the past weeks have made one thing abundantly clear. A good number of investors are still conservatively positioned in their portfolios. And what do I mean? 
chunky allocations to cash and cash-like securities like money markets, CDs, treasury bills. And why not? They could be earning 5% sitting in these products with almost no volatility. Sure, that sounds great, especially after a year like last year. But the opportunity cost might tell a different story. Those 5% yields that everybody quotes, that's an annualized number. So here we sit at the halfway mark, six months into that 12-month quoted yield. Those short-term investments are up 2.5% year-to-date. That performance pales in comparison to what almost every other asset class has returned so far. Might we begin to see some FOMO as a 2.5% gain doesn't look so hot against an equity market a return of close to 17%? Maybe. But the point, there's still plenty of cash sitting on the sidelines in short-dated bonds or money markets that can come off the sidelines and push equities higher. But why should equities go up? Because that recession outlook gets challenged more and more every day, it seems. As we outlined at the start of this podcast, the same catalysts that we thought would make for a better first half this year are still in play. And add in the CapEx spending boom on structures and equipment we highlighted as well as a housing market that's not showing any signs of slowing, but actually appears to be reaccelerating. And it's tough to see a market drawdown in growth with all of this support. Still decent nominal growth should support earnings, which could squeeze the market higher over the remainder of the year. The risk? Inflation. It still remains elevated and above levels that the Fed is comfortable with. And that's the wild card. As we've highlighted repeatedly in our takes, inflation is coming down. The worst is behind us. The question remains the speed at which it continues to descend. Is the Fed comfortable with that pace? We've talked about the lagged effects and the methodological quirks with shelter. It's a question of when, not if, that softening in rental prices finally finds its way into core CPI. And labor markets are showing signs of normalization, which is putting downward pressure on wages. We take comfort in the quit rate dropping as well as wage gains easing for job switchers. Both of these are leading indicators for the health of the labor market in our view. You don't quit your job if you don't feel secure in your prospects, and you don't quit your job if you think you can't find a new and better one. And jumping from one position to another was the fastest way to increase your income. And those gains seen from job hopping are softening as well. Yes, that last mile for inflation may prove sticky, and this is where the Fed will have some tough decisions to make. I learned a new economic term a few weeks ago. My youngest daughter just finished up her freshman year at the University of Maryland, where she's pursuing a degree in quant economics. She's been taking her obligatory intro courses for macro and microeconomics, and we've had some fun conversations about theory and putting that into real-world examples. One concept that came up that I had never heard of, the sacrifice ratio. She informed me that the sacrifice ratio measures the effect of rising and falling inflation on a country's total production and output. How appropriate. The sacrifice ratio encapsulates perfectly the dilemma facing the Fed as it continues its push towards its 2% target. Getting to a three-handle was pretty straightforward, but that last push to get to 2% might require some significant trade-offs, one that requires a recession in order to bring inflation down to 2%. The Fed is unique in its dual mandate, full employment and stable prices. How willing will the Fed be to push the economy into a recession in order to achieve its target? Is it willing to trade sharp job losses for an inflation rate of 2%? Or can it sit tight and use higher for longer to slowly get inflation back down while minimizing the damage to the overall economy and jobs? 
That's the dilemma that will likely prove to be the key for the back half of this year, the sacrifice ratio. I guess you can teach an old dog new tricks. Okay, a few interesting observations to share from last month. We highlighted in May's podcast the issue with market breadth. Our main point, looking at the data that we've surveyed, we tend to see that more times than not, breadth expands to catch up to the market rather than prices catching down to match market breadth. Intuitively, we argued that breadth is a function of sentiment. So what did we see in June? The equally weighted S&P 500 outperformed the market cap weighted S&P 500. And this happened all the while the FANG names posted strong gains. Signs of broader participation emerging. What else did we see? Market leadership came from cyclicals and growth names. More specifically, industrials and materials, along with discretionaries, all made healthy gains, outperforming the broad markets. Discretionaries have had a strong run of late, handily outpacing staples, a relationship that we like to follow. One would expect staples to outperform discretionaries in a slowing economic environment as consumers begin to batten down the hatches. And we're seeing just the opposite, discretionaries making new relative highs versus staples. With the consumer accounting for almost 70% of the U.S. growth story, this is something that we'd file under not bearish. A few other random observations. Semiconductors and home builders are pushing all-time highs. These two segments of the economy are some of the most economically cyclical and sensitive, and yet they continue to power higher. That's telling you something. Small and mid-cap names outpaced large caps across the cap structure in both the growth and value buckets in June, too. And to top it off, the four largest names in the financial sector, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan, MasterCard, and Visa, all made new 52-week highs to close out the month, a bullish sign for the third largest sector in the S&P 500. Plenty of evidence that we're seeing a broadening out in terms of leadership, breath catching up. So what do we do this month? A few things. We rotated some exposure out of Europe into Japan, a move reflecting a more supportive backdrop for a monetary policy standpoint. The Bank of Japan is expected to remain easy while the ECB might have some more work to do. We're seeing a sharper downshift in European growth numbers and expect that growth divergence to manifest in equity market performance. We also reduced our exposure to emerging Asia, modestly bringing emerging markets underweight the benchmark and adding to U.S. small caps. We expect the highly anticipated China stimulus to underwhelm and prefer to play the broadening out in the market breadth in the U.S. through increasing small cap exposure. Lastly, we sold some U.S. large cap exposure for positions in U.S. home builders and U.S. infrastructure. We've touched on the strength in single-family starts in the boom in CapEx spending in structures and equipment, both heavily tied to our infrastructure play. Bottom line, we remain constructive on risk assets and expect to see some broadening out from the recent rally. To wrap up our podcast, The Tactical Take, this is Jack Janisiewicz. Hope you enjoyed the commentary and thanks for listening. Important information. For listeners outside the United States, Natixis Investment Managers Distribution and Service Groups include Natixis Investment Managers SA, Luxembourg, Natixis Investment Managers International, France, and their affiliated distribution and service entities. These entities conduct any regulated activities only in and from the jurisdictions in which they are licensed or authorized. Their services and the products they manage are not available to all investors in all jurisdictions. For additional information and important podcasts disclosures for listeners outside the U.S., please consult im.natixis.com slash intl slash podcasts dash and dash other dash media. Further, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those 
those of the speaker and not necessarily those of Natixis investment managers. These views were provided as of the date of recording and will not be revised. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute investment advice or an offer to buy or sell a financial product from any Natixis investment manager's entity. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Performance data discussed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results. Indexes are not investments, do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis, such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products, provided by Natixis Distribution, LLC, 888 Boylston Street, Boston, MA02199. Natixis Investment Managers includes all of the investment management and distribution entities affiliated with Natixis Distribution, LLC and Natixis Investment Managers SA. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. LLC Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision. Member SIPC, Adtrax, 5796916111. Expiration date, February 29, 2024. POD 37, July, 2023.